You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right. Everybody bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you this morning, um, as we get ready to look at your word, God, I pray that you would open our hearts that you would help us to hear from you. Father, I know and I believe and I trust that your word is living and active and that it, it, it takes a look uh, deep down into our hearts and our souls. It reveals things that need to change inside of us, but it also reveals deep within us our need for you. So God, I pray that you would just come by the power of your spirit, you would come, that you would be in this room, that you would speak to us, that you would refresh us and renew us and, and heal us. And Father, help us to catch a vision and a picture for who you are and who you say we are. God, I pray that you would just transform and change the posture of our hearts today through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that you would cause them to do just a ton of good in our midst today. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So we've been in the book of Ephesians now for, counting today, 18 sermons. And we're just in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 14 through 15. Uh, so we're just taking a slow walk through the book of Ephesians. And if you're new with us, visiting with us, this is our mode of operating. We, uh, we like to preach expositionally. Through so the scriptures mean that we just like to start at the beginning of a book, preach through it verse by verse. Um, we believe that this is one of the best ways for God to speak to us. And as we come into verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be examining uh, the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. This is the second time he's prayed in the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to take the next four weeks to just examine this prayer of Paul's and uh, we're going to be praying that God would just use it um, to just challenge us in this area of prayer. Specifically today, my aim is to, is to draw a sharp arrow or a sharp focus on our posture in prayer. See, for me, sometimes, I don't know if you're like me in this area, but sometimes I, I find myself praying uh, for the wrong reasons, or I catch myself uh, praying to false images of who I think God in my, in, in my head is, right? Like I have this picture of who God is, but it's, it's not really who he is. Um, and I just catch myself doing that sometimes. Sometimes it seems uh, difficult to keep up a steady rhythm of prayer. Anybody ever struggle with that? Keeping up just a steady rhythm in prayer? Like what happens is I, I start praying sometimes and I wind up getting distracted I make a decision to spend some time in prayer. I wind up falling asleep. Anybody ever do that? And my wife will find me asleep on the couch, and she'll wake me up. She'll say, what are you doing? Oh, I was praying. No, you were sleeping. Oh, I fell asleep in the midst of praying. Well, sometimes I spend time in prayer, and, and what it feels like sometimes, it just feels dull and lifeless. Anybody ever, like, it just kind of feels like a routine, like, yeah, I know I should be connecting with the power of God here as I pray, but it just feels dull and lifeless, like, almost like my prayers are going no higher than the ceiling above me almost. Um, so sometimes that's what my prayer is like. Sometimes, sometimes I just don't know what to pray about. Anybody ever get there? Like, man, I, I want to pray, but I don't really know 
what to pray about today. My, my brain feels empty. Or maybe I don't know what to say. Have you ever had that experience where somebody asks you to pray for them or asks you to pray in a, <clears throat> in a gathering? You go, Man, I, don't, I don't know what to say. And it kind of gets a little scary for you. And what we need and what, what I need, I know when I'm struggling with these things, is I need to be set free by God's word. That's what every one of us here needs. Now, there are also times in prayer for me um, where I feel like there's nothing better than experiencing God's presence in prayer. Um, sometimes God speaks to me in those times of prayer in such powerful ways that I never want to leave his presence. Have you ever experienced that? You're just like, man. It's like, it's like somehow some portal between you and heaven is opened up. And you're just like connecting with God uh, almost tangibly where you can just feel in there. You just never want to leave that experience. I, I experience that sometimes. Sometimes I have felt this extraordinary presence of the Holy Spirit in my times of prayer, almost as though God is praying through me from deep down inside, like things I didn't even think I was gonna pray for. I just begin to pray for it. just becomes a real extraordinary kind of like encapturing moment where I'm just caught up in the presence of God and like nothing else could break through. The moments in my prayer life where I think I've been driven to my knees um, by, by like a fresh revelation or, or a fresh picture of who God is. Like maybe for a long time I've been walking and believing something about God that wasn't true and suddenly he comes in and like course corrects that and I go, Oh my goodness, that's who God is. And it like drives me to my knees, right? Or vice versa, there's been times where as I've been trying to pray and spending time or, or studying God's word maybe, where, where I just suddenly catch this, this massive picture of who God says I am, right? Like, like feel this weight lifted, like maybe I've been walking in some shame or, or some guilt or, or some fear and suddenly God lifts that and just reminds me, no, this is who you are. You're my son and I love you. And in those moments, it like rocks my world, right? That's kind of the moment that we're about to have as we read this text. That's the moment we're about to have. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Everybody say, so be it. That word amen, that's what that means. So be it. I'm in agreement. Paul's posture in this prayer, I believe is rooted in two things. Uh, one, the reasons that he prayed, and number two, the person that he prayed to. I want you to think for a minute about the word posture. Think about that for a minute. If you're a parent and you have kids, you're always yelling at your kids to have better posture, right? Quit hunching over. For some of you, it's probably driving you crazy as you look up at me hunching over the 
pulpit at times, right? You need to have good posture. Keep your back straight. As we think about prayer, I want us to think about the posture of prayer. We, we like to posture ourselves in certain ways, right? Certain kinds of posture we like, a certain kind of posture that we don't like. We, we like the posture of strength or success or, or confidence. We like that posture. But, but this other posture of weakness or sinfulness or brokenness or, or, or fearfulness, th- those aren't postures that seem very desirable. We don't like to look weak or sinful or fearful or broken. We like to look strong, successful, or confident. That, that's our go-to posture. The question is, is, what does your posture in prayer look like lately? Is your posture in prayer the posture of someone who is uninterested? Think about what that posture looks like. Or, or is your posture in prayer the posture of someone who is kind of just going through the routine? Is that you? Just kind of going through the motions each day? Or, or is it someone who only maybe calls on God when, when you need something? And it, maybe that's your posture kind of in the moment. But what does your posture in prayer, think about this, what does your posture in prayer say about what you believe about God? Think about that. What does your posture in prayer say about what you believe about God? Or what you believe about yourself? I believe that the reasons that we pray, and I believe that the person that we pray to deeply affects the posture of our praying. And that's kind of my big idea for this week. Like, your posture in prayer is rooted, or, or it's, it, the foundation of your posture in prayer is rooted in the reasons that you pray and the person that you pray to. Sometimes we pray for the wrong reasons, and sometimes we pray to false images of who God is. And what we need is to be set free by what God's word says here, right? Just from a confessionary standpoint, sometimes I pray for the wrong reasons. Sometimes that's my struggle. I pray for the wrong reasons. Sometimes the reason that I pray is because I think that prayer is just my duty or just my, my obligation, right? I begin to think that it's my duty to pray and so what happens is, is my posture becomes like that of a son who, who just begrudgingly doesn't want to take out the trash. Anybody know what that looks like, right? Or a kid just doesn't want to take out the trash. Like, if prayer is just my duty or my obligation, then when I come to God, that's going to be my posture. Oh, I've got to pray today. Kind of like Eeyore, right? Head down, ears flopping, head bobbing back and forth. That becomes my posture. I like somebody maybe who's fearful or, or, or anxious. Sometimes, I, sometimes my posture is like that of somebody who's just kind of frantically coming to God's presence because some crazy thing just happened in my life, right? Kind of that momentary need thing. Like that's my posture. So again, kind of fearful and anxious as I come into God's presence. And, and, and here's the thing, like I know I know that it's my duty. I know that I have a duty to pray. I know there's a responsibility piece to there. Just like when my wife comes home from work, I have a little bit of a responsibility and a desire, just so you guys hear that. I want to. I have a want to. But I know there's a bit of a responsibility. I've got to talk to my wife, right? I've got to spend some time with her. And if all I ever did was just because it's just my responsibility and my duty, like, oh, i got to go check on Christy and see how she's doing now. 
man, what would that do to our relationship? The, the intimacy and the closest that we feel wouldn't really be there, right? What if, what if I only came to my wife and was just like, oh my gosh, can you believe like the house is burning down? Like that was the only time I talked to her? Like, what kind of relationship would we have, right? I know that I have a duty to pray. I know that it's also good to come to God with my needs, but here's the thing. Like, I think for me, it's, it's easy to shroud these kinds of prayer postures with a bunch of religious language, kind of give myself a pass, like, ah, uh, it's okay. But I think if I dig a little deeper into those kinds of postures, um, what happens is I think that I find that I fundamentally misbelieve some things about God deep within my heart. That's what's really going on deep, deep down inside, right? Like sometimes I pray to a false image of who God is. Like my duty posture with my head hung low, if I just examine that for a minute, then what that teaches me is that I believe in a false image of who God is and I begin to believe, I have this picture in my head that he's just this angry God who is displeased with me because I haven't followed through on all my duties, right? That's my picture of God then. Maybe in my momentary need posture. Again, I only coming to God when the wheels have fallen off the bus and I feel really needy. If I just examine that for a minute and I think about it, I let the Holy Spirit do some self-examination. What happens is I learn that what I believe in in those moments is this false image of a God who is more like a bellhop or a waitress, right? More like a bellhop or a waitress who's gonna come running at my beck and call whenever I have a need. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, if he gives me what I want in prayer, I'll drop a tip for him in the back, right? Like that hits home, doesn't it? Sometimes, sometimes what, what happens is I, I wind up recreating God. I refashion him into my own image is what happens the image that I have of him. And the result of that is that, that I, I begin to pray to a weak or a broken or a false God rather than my true, all-powerful, all-loving Father in heaven. In my head, right? In my head, uh, with my words at the right times, if you were to ask me, I think that I would tell you that I believe that my Father in heaven is this all-powerful, all-loving God. I-, I preach this from the pulpit every week, right? So in the right moments, I would tell you that. But here's the thing. In my quiet moments, in my fearful moments, in the moments where I'm weak, in the moments where I feel afraid, in the moments where I'm struggling with sin, In those moments before the Lord, it's as if the posture of my praying needs to be transformed by the truth of who God actually is and who God actually says I am. See, I, just like you, need to be set free from my unbelieving posture. What I'm doing here is I'm looking at the fruit of my life and I'm just following it naturally down the tree trunk to the root, right? What we need is we need God's word to speak into those places of unbelief in our lives. I think what happens sometimes is for, if you're here and you're a believer, what happens is I think that at that moment where we either a, like say the sinner's prayer to camp or, or the preacher preaches something and we go, man, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ. I think from that moment forward, we begin to think 
that somehow we're not unbelievers anymore, right? But the truth is, is that every one of us still struggles with unbelief. Whether, whether you are here and you, you are not following Jesus, or whether you're here and you've been following for 15 minutes or 50 years, we're not perfect yet because we're not in heaven. And so every one of us still struggles with some areas of unbelief. And, and it's easy to assess that maybe, but once you've assessed that, something has to change that unbelief into belief. This is the process of repentance. Start at the fruit, work down to the root, let God's word speak to the root, come back up to the fruit, right? This is actually not my image um, stolen from many other guys who are much smarter than me. But this applies to our praying in many different ways. See, God's word uh, uh, speaks truth to my, my struggle with unbelief. Uh, the truth of God's word is what I need. The truth of God's word is what sets me free to believe in who God is and who God says that I am. The, the, the posture of my praying is then transformed by those truths. Think about that. Think about how if what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself, think about how that would actually change the way that you pray. Think about what your prayer life could look like from this point forward. See, Paul says in verses 14 and 15, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason. Paul says, for this reason, I am praying in a posture of humility on my knees before the God of heaven and earth. Ask this question as you're looking at the text. What's the reason for Paul's posture of prayer? Why is he praying on his knees before the Father? Now, most scholars, if you go back and check in some of the commentaries, most scholars will point out that this is the second time that Paul uses this phrase, for this reason. The first time he used the phrase was back up in verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul. Right? For this reason, I, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So this is the second time he's using that phrase now in verse 14. And what this leads scholars, and now I, as I'm studying this, what this leads me to believe is that, is that Paul was actually getting set to launch out into this big, massive prayer back in verse one of chapter three, but then he got sidetracked. Imagine that. A preacher getting sidetracked? <laughs> It's not just preachers that get sidetracked. We all get sidetracked when it comes to prayer. Amen. Not so be it. Shouldn't say amen there, right? Agreed. He got sidetracked. But what's the deal here, though? Why, why is he saying it? What's the reason for Paul's prayer? When, it's, when he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. What's, what caused him to take up this kneeled posture of prayer? I think, I think this is the answer. If you track your way back through everything that Paul has said so far in Ephesians, what you'll find is you'll find Paul expounding the truths of who God is, and you'll find him expounding the truths of who you and I are in Christ Jesus if you're a believer. That's what you find Paul doing all the way through. So when he says, for this reason, I think what he's doing is he's looking back and he's saying, based on everything I've said, for all of these reasons, I now bow my knees. It's as though, 
Paul had caught this massive vision of who God is and who he is, and that drove him to his knees in prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. He says things like this. He says, in Christ, you are not cursed, you are blessed. Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. See, you are not an outcast. You are blessed sons and daughters who've been set apart by God's love. You, you are not an enemy of God. You are a blessed family member who's been adopted by God's grace. You're, you're not left here like a rotting corpse. Man, you are blessed with a new life that lasts for all of eternity. He also says that in Christ you are chosen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. You are chosen. Nothing can erase the blood signature of Jesus on your adoption papers. God has chosen you to be united to Jesus, sanctified in Jesus, adopted through Jesus. In Christ you are chosen. He also says that in Christ you are priceless. You are twice owned by the God of creation and the God of salvation, the, the God who created you also paid the price to purchase you. And you, you get to now enjoy the benefits of God's forgiveness and grace as you grow in your understanding of the gospel. It's Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, right? He also says that in Christ, you are guaranteed. You can hang your life on this guarantee. In Christ, you are guaranteed. It's Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. You can rest assured in the guarantee that God has signed your salvation plan in the blood of Christ. Nothing can erase that. He has sealed you, sealed you with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He will deliver you completely from your pain and your suffering on the day that you run into heaven. When we come into heaven, there is no more pain, no more tears, no more sin, no more suffering. That's a guarantee that you and I have. Signed, sealed, and delivered by the star breather, right? Ah. He also says that in Christ, you can live with your eyes wide open. You can live with your eyes wide open, Ephesians 1, 15 through 20. When you, when you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open rather than shut, you are set free to trust and to love and to know and to hope and to believe and to live in the power of Christ. He also says that in Christ, the power of God is enough for you. The power of God is enough for you. You, you are united to Christ which means you are united to the power of God in the resurrection. The tomb was empty. Jesus beat Satan, sin, and the grave. And if you trust in him, if you're following him, then you have that same power. The next time you argue with your wife, the next time you struggle with your finances, the next time you're looking at your computer late at night, the next time you struggle in your singleness, the next time anything faces you, what you can know is that the power of the empty tomb is inside of you. power of God is enough for you. He also says that in Christ you are spiritually alive. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, you, you once were spiritually dead in your old lifestyle of sin. Back then when you followed the way of the world, when you followed Satan, when you lived according to your fleshy desires, when you were a child of wrath, when you were just like the rest of humanity, way back then when you were dead in all of your sin, but now in Christ, now, in Christ, you are spiritually alive. 
You are spiritually alive because, not because you were so good, because of God's rich mercy and because of God's great love and because God raised Jesus from the dead and because God's grace saved you and because God has positioned you. He's seated you in the same seat with Christ in the heavenlies. That's your position. This is who you are. God chose to reveal himself to you. Therefore, you once were spiritually dead, but now you're spiritually alive. He also says that in Christ you are saved. My favorite passage in all of scripture, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Nine words, you remember? Nine fantastic words. My favorite nine words in all of scripture distilled down into three words, the word for and the word grace and the word faith. Those three words teach you and I to look to Christ because he, Jesus, is the face of grace and the author of your faith and the means of your salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. The gift of salvation has been given to you by God's free grace and it is received through the pipeline of faith. And he also says that in Christ you can rest from doing, working, chasing, and bragging. You can rest from your doing and your working and your chasing and your bragging. You can stop trying to earn God's love. You can stop trying to earn his acceptance in all that you do. You can, you can stop working hard to pretend like you're better than you really are. You can stop measuring yourself You can stop measuring all of the results of your slow growth process against this false image of what you think it should look like. You can stop measuring all of your slow growth process against someone else's quicker growth process, and you can just rest in the fact that all of us are more like turtles than we are gazelles most of the time. And yet God still loves us. That's his good news that Paul's been laying down for us. He also says that in Christ, your life is a masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. God prepared your good works before the foundations of the earth were laid. Think about that. All the good works that you are called to do, all the good things that you say, I was supposed to do that. God prepared them for you to do it, and he's given you a spirit to enable you to do it too. Yeah. Masterpiece of your life. It's not about your speed. It's about God's direction. It's about the direction you're headed. Not about how fast you're getting there. It's not about you. It's not about you and how fast you can grow. It's not about your works or your accomplishments. It's about God's work and God's accomplishments on your behalf and in your life and then through your life. The gift of salvation reveals the master behind the masterpiece of your life. He also says that in Christ you are a new person with a new name. This was one of my favorites. You are a new person with a new name. You are close to God. You are covered in the blood of Christ. You have a new name, a new identity, a new position, a new title. Your past doesn't define 
who you are. Your past cannot give you a name other than the name that God has given you. You used to be an orphan that was named by your sin, your guilt, and your shame. But guess what? Now your name is Christian. The potholes of your past do not dictate the direction or the destination of your journey. You have a new name that your past and your future cannot dictate or erase. You are a new person. You have a new name. Paul also says that in Christ, you are at peace and full of peace. You can live in true peace in the midst of brokenness and conflict and pain. And you do this by believing that Jesus is your peace, even when things don't make sense. When you believe that your peace is found in Christ alone, at the foot of the cross alone, you are enabled to rest peacefully in the Father's presence alone as you live at peace with other people. See, the cross of Christ provides vertical peace between you and God. Previous to you becoming a believer, becoming a Christian, previous to that, there was no vertical connection between you and God. You were his enemy. You were at war with him by the way that you lived. But through the cross of Christ, you, you can now have peace, vertical peace between you and God. And then once that happens, it creates horizontal peace between you and other people. Anytime you see people that are at war with each other, arguing with one another, backstabbing each other, talking trash about each other, it's because something has happened in their fundamental belief about who God is. They are not connected to the Father in heaven in a life-giving way. Therefore, they're taking it out on their brothers and sisters who've been created in the image of God. This is what James says. How, how can you and I be two-tunned people, right? Worshiping God out of one side of our mouth and then tearing down our brothers and sisters out of the other. It should not be this way, James says, right? But we've, we've been given peace through the cross of Christ. Therefore, we have horizontal peace with others. Paul also says that in Christ you are treasured, secure, and useful. Ephesians 2, 19-22. God's love written in Christ's blood. Man, it serves as the eviction notice to your anxiety and your worry. You are not worthless. You are not alone. You are not useless. You, you are not insignificant. Christ is your security. Christ is your certainty. Christ is your significance. Paul also says that in Christ you are a redeemed prisoner. Ephesians 3, 1. You can remain confident because you know that Christ has redeemed you and captured you. You are imprisoned to him. You are a prisoner of Christ now. If you are in Christ, you no longer need to chase power. You no longer need to chase prestige. You no longer need to ch chase fame or success. You are free to chase the presence of Christ in the midst of suffering. You're no longer an enemy of Christ. You are a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the gospel. Paul also says that in Christ you are a steward of the gospel of grace. You can remain confident because you know that you are a steward of God's grace. You have received a gift that keeps on giving. You are not a mere consumer of God's grace. You are a 
contributor of God's grace. You are an active participant in building the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. That's Ephesians 3, 2 through 5. Paul also says that in Christ, you are a promise-trusting, gospel-made person. You can remain confident, not because you're so good, not because you just have a ton of confidence deep within you, but you can rest confidently because you've trusted in the promises of the gospel. If you try to find confidence in anything else, it will fail you. Your title, your accomplishments, there's no security there. But in the promises of the gospel, you can find true confidence in Christ's completed work at the cross where he says, it is finished. Paul also says that you can confidently call others to be confident. You don't have to be an important or impressive person to carry out a big responsibility. You have complete, unhindered access to the powerful, unlimited presence of God. You have every reason to be confident because you are not alone. You haven't been left in the backyard like a broken down car. God has pulled you. If you have trusted in Christ, he has pulled you into the repair shop called the church. This is where God restores people and reconciles people and changes people. God is restoring you into a new person. You are becoming the home of the Spirit of God. Your confidence is rooted in seeing God for who he is and seeing yourself for who God says you are. This is why Paul said, for this reason. This is the reason that drove Paul to his knees in prayer. This is why he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. See, Paul didn't pray out of duty or obligation. Paul didn't pray just because he had a rough day. Paul didn't pray to an angry father. He prayed to his Abba father, his daddy, daddy. That's who he prayed to. He didn't pray to a bellhop or a waitress. Paul prayed to the God that he knew because God had made him new. And that revelation had transformed the posture of Paul's prayer. You see, praying to the God that you believe in in light of who you think God says you are, changes your prayer posture. Your posture in prayer is rooted in the reasons you pray and the person you pray to. So the question is, what does your prayer posture look like? I'll, I'll pick a beef with our church family members just for a minute. Uh, something that we do every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, as we pray for a half hour. And there's, there's at least two or three of us that are really consistent with that. And without, without beating us over the head, I just got to ask, where's, if you're a member here, like, where are you at with that? What does your posture of prayer look like lately? Have you slipped into, like, this religious routine of prayer as an obligation or a duty? Have you been absent from the discipline of prayer? Have you found yourself only hitting your knees in prayer because of some life-altering thing in front of you? 
Like how transforming would it be for you to take these 17 principles that we've learned over the last 17 sermons, what would it look like for you to take those and turn them into 17 days of prayer? That's my charge to you. That's what I dare you to do. I dare you to take those 17 principles regarding who God is and who you are in Christ and use them as the reason to pray for the next 17 days and just maybe, just maybe what will happen for you. As you do that, maybe you'll find that the person you begin to pray to is radically transformed from a, from a God of self-creation maybe into the true God of all creation. Because that's who you have the opportunity to connect with. See, it's not about obligation. It's not about only coming when you are facing this massive need. It's about this picture of knowing that I get to connect with the God of all creation. What a privilege is that? How would that radically transform your life? What if some of you even just did that for the next 17 weeks on Sundays? I challenge you to journal your experiences. Post some of that on social media. Lord knows we post a whole bunch of stuff on social media, so post that. You know? Post that. Write down what happens in the posture of your heart as you pray. Share your experience with your gospel community. And for some of us, we struggle in gospel community thinking that it's just a big social gathering, but, but really, it's about the gospel being central in our gathering together. I share your experience of this there. Like my prayer for all of us is that we would move away from the posture of duty, that we would move away from the posture of momentary need, and that we would move into this true posture of like daily dependence on our knees in the presence of Christ. Your posture in prayer is rooted in two things, the reasons you pray and the person you pray to. So let me pray. Father, I pray, God, that you would take this word and that you would apply it to our hearts. I pray that you would transform our posture in prayer. I pray, Father, that through the power of your spirit, you would radically alter and change the picture that we have deep within our hearts. God, I pray that you would change the picture that we have of you, change the picture that we have of ourselves. Help us to see who you are. Help us to see who you say we are. And God, make that the reason that we are driven to our knees to come and meet with you. Pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.